Episode 9, Athenian Democracy and the Golden Age of Greece. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and we try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 9, Athenian Democracy and the Golden Age of Greece. We've talked about the famous battles of the Greek-Persian Wars and how, after the huge naval battle at Salamis, the Persians never threatened Greece again. The Battle of Salamis happened on September 27th, 480 BC. There's still a few important land battles in 479 BC, but the Greeks won those as well and destroyed what was left of the Persian army in Greece. This sets the stage for an era of peace and prosperity in Greece that would be incredibly influential. As points of reference, just to tie this in with things that are going on in other parts of the world, I thought I'd mention some other world events going on around this time frame. About 80 years or so before Salamis, off in India, around 563 BC, Buddha was born. Buddhism begins to form as a religion in the years following the Buddha's death. So in the time frame of the golden age of Greece, we've also got the beginnings of the religion of Buddhism. Buddhism starts small, as did Christianity, but Buddhism will eventually grow to become one of the world's largest religions. We'll come back to those growth curves in religions in upcoming episodes. Also going on about the same time, the Jews who had returned from exile in Babylon were rebuilding their temple under the guidance of Nehemiah and Ezra. And also around this time, around 509 BC, the Roman Republic was founded. We'll also come back to the Romans. Lots of things to say about the Romans. Lots of important stuff was going on in the 5th century BC. By the way, I don't really like calling these time periods the 5th century because it just doesn't match up to the years in a way that I like. Because the 5th century is the 400s. The 5th century is the time period from 499 BC to 400 BC. We'll have that problem again when we get to the ADs. It's because the 1st century is the, the zeros and the tens, like 49 BC. So that's the 1st century. I prefer saying in the 400s BC rather than saying the 5th century. It just makes more sense to me, even though historians all like to sound very erudite and say, in the 5th century BC. For the rest of these episodes, I'm going to stick with the actual numbers and not use the 4th or 5th century nomenclature very much. So, in the 400s BC, a lot of important stuff was going on. But what was also happening was the Golden Age of Greece, which lasts from the reign of Pisistratus, a tyrant who ruled over Athens in about 528 BC, until the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC. So, right about 200 years. The Golden Age of Greece is also known as the Classical Period, or Classical Greece. So, what made it golden? What made it a classic? Well, there were two ascendant cities during this time, Athens and Sparta. They were both incredibly prosperous, and they both laid claim to the title of the leading city of Greece. They also fought several times during this period, and we'll talk about those battles in the next episode. But what really made this time period unique was all of the amazing stuff going on in Athens during this time. 
So the golden age of Greece is really mostly an Athenian thing, even though Sparta was doing very well during this time. But the, the golden stuff, it all came from Athens. So in this time period, just to summarize, we have Pericles, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Aeschylus, Aristophanes, Euripides, Herodotus, Thucydides, Hippocrates, and the birth of democracy. All of these writers and um, philosophers have left lasting impacts in politics, philosophy, and literature. And that's not even the full list. There was also beautiful pottery and amazing architecture, including the Parthenon in Athens, which has been described by some people as the most perfect building ever built. So what created this great period of productivity? It was something about the nature of Athens in those days. For one thing, Athens was peaceful and prosperous. It takes both of those things for a city or, or culture to be able to create a class of people who are artists, philosophers, and historians. In the middle of a, a siege from an enemy where your city is surrounded and you're all about to die, no one's really worried about writing ancient history or the next great play. And you just have to survive. But Athens had this period of tranquility and prosperity, and some great artists, writers, and thinkers had the time to be creative. So we'll come back to this at the end of the episode, but there are a lot of ways that this time period influences our modern world. Obviously, the advent of Athenian democracy and the idea that citizens can come together to create their own government and protect their own rights, something that influenced the founding fathers of the United States and, and other democracies around the world. And before I get into how this played out in Athens, I need to clarify something since we're talking about democracy. Because the United States isn't technically a democracy. It's a republic. Well, Plato might argue that we're currently an oligarchy putting on a show of being a republic. But more on Plato and his descriptions of government later in, in another episode. A true democracy is where all the citizens vote, or at least can vote, on every law. A republic is where the citizens select a representative to go vote for them. The citizens vote on who will represent them, and then the representatives get together, and they actually vote on the laws. So modern United States and United Kingdom are both types of republics, not democracies. They have representatives that do the lawmaking and the voting, not every individual citizen. Anyway, Athens was a true democracy where all the citizens could vote on the laws. So... How did Athens come to be a democracy and enter into its golden age? Well, as most golden age stories do, the story starts with a tyrant and people getting fed up with the tyrant's tyrannical ways. By the way, the word tyrant back in the days of ancient Greece didn't mean a harsh autocratic ruler. It just meant someone who had taken over the role of leading the government in an illegitimate way. The term tyrant didn't originally refer to how someone ruled. It referred to how they took power. Well, the people got fed up with a tyrant who had taken power illegitimately, and they made some changes. As I mentioned before, in 4, 546 BC, an Athenian named Pisistratus took control of Athens. His rule lasted for 18 years, and it was actually a pretty good period for Athens, um, so the Athenians didn't put up too much of a fuss about him. Right? He did a good job. But then his sons took over, and they were tyrants in our modern sense of the word. The Athenians tolerated Pisistratus because despite the way he took power, he did a good job as the leader of the city. His sons did not, and the Athenians decided they didn't want to be ruled over someone that they had not chosen. 
So in 510 BC, the Athenians chose Cleisthenes to be their archon or leader. One of the hallmarks of the Athenian system of government that they created was that they wanted to be ruled by someone they themselves had chosen. This idea, the concept of government by the consent of those governed, is one of the core ideas of liberty. Within that idea, and also within the Declaration of Independence, is also the idea that if the people who are governed do not consent to their government, it is their right to change the government. And that's what the Athenians did. Cleisthenes reformed a lot of Athenian practices and he rebuilt the democracy. There was an assembly that any citizen could attend, which met every 10 days to debate and vote on proposals made by the council. The council was made up of 500 citizens, and they would propose laws that would then be voted on by the assembly of all the citizens who showed up. There were also specific offices called strategoi and archons that were elected to serve specific roles. In 495 BC, a very gifted leader named Pericles becomes one of the strategoi. He was a strategoi for 50 years. He kept getting elected because the people liked him that much. And this is the height of the golden age. Pericles also strengthened the democracy and presided over the rebuilding of the Acropolis, which had been badly damaged by the Persians, um, including the building of the Parthenon, as well as several other temples. During the time of Pericles, two of the greatest philosophers in all of human history were born. Both Socrates and Plato were born during the time when Pericles was one of the strategoi. Socrates was probably born around 470 BC, and his time as an actual productive philosopher and teacher happened during the time of Pericles. Plato was one of Socrates' students, and his time as a teacher and writer took place after Pericles, but it was still during the Golden Age. I'm planning on having a separate episode on Socrates, Plato, and Plato's student Aristotle, because they really are important enough in terms of how they affected the modern world to warrant their own episode. I should mention here that they basically started the first permanent school of higher education, which was called the Academy. During the same time period, Aeschylus, Euripides, and Sophocles were writing comedies and tragedies that are still read and studied today. Their writing, along with Homer's and also Plato's, is considered the best writing in the Greek language. These guys were the Greek equivalents of Shakespeare, and Shakespeare himself was influenced by some of the Greek plays. In addition to the playwrights, we also have the first real historians of antiquity during this period. Herodotus and Thucydides both tried to accurately record historical events not long after those events had happened. Before them, much of the historical record that we have that still exists, it was written by kings who had conquered someone and had a history written to glorify their own deeds. So in those histories, accuracy was less important than glorifying the king who had commissioned the historical writing. The Greeks did it a little differently. Herodotus is known as the father of history. Although others recorded historical events before him, he did a much more thorough job of getting and recording the facts of events. It's his records of Thermopylae and Salamis that are our best source for the names, dates, and flow of events uh, that happened in those battles. And though both Herodotus and Thucydides wrote clearly pro-Greek histories, their thoroughness and their descriptiveness has set the standard for all future historians. The physician Hippocrates of the famous Hippocratic Oath 
also wrote during this period in his books on health and medicine are among the oldest records of human disease and health, and they set the stage for much of the medical writing down through the ages. On top of all this writing, there was also a great surge in architecture and sculpture. When you think of classical architecture, right, that means Athenian architecture. I mentioned the Parthenon, which was the temple to Athena on the Acropolis, which was the hill at the top of Athens. There were other temples up there too, and they were all amazingly beautiful. Uh, And they all contained amazing marble statues of different gods and goddesses. So we had it all kind of back then in Athens. Um, Great writers, great plays, uh, great philosophers, great artists, great sculptors, great architects, and good leadership. And it really just was a golden age and a very incredibly productive age. Other cultures throughout history have always looked back at these times in Athens and the writings and the art of this period and then been inspired by them. Much of the great things about, like, for example, ancient Rome were lifted straight out of ancient Greece, right? The Romans just saw that stuff and said, hey, that's great. Let's just use it ourselves. So after the democracy of ancient Athens, Greek, uh, Greece was conquered by Philip of Macedon, who is also Greek, but he conquered the lower Greek peninsula. And then his son, Alexander the Great, took Greek culture and the Greek language, and he spread it all around the Mediterranean and into Asia because he conquered everything. The Greek language became a sort of trade language in the Mediterranean and in the Far East, the language that everyone used for business and government, and especially for just transacting with each other when they were speaking, when they uh, spoke different native tongues. Greek was relatively easy to write. Uh, It's got a fairly simple alphabet, and the Greek alphabet is, is very phonetic, so it's relatively easy to learn the language. Now, Greek verb tenses, yes, they are crazy hard to master, but basic Greek, the kind you would use for trading with someone, is relatively easy. And because of the writings of the Greek masters, Greek also became the language of scholarship for many, many generations. This is one of the reasons that the New Testament was written in Greek, even though Jesus probably spoke Aramaic during his lifetime. That was the common language of Judea at the time, Aramaic. But the New Testament was written to an audience beyond just the region of Judea. So because of the audience and because Greek was the language of trade and scholarship, the original writers of the New Testament wrote their gospels and their epistles in Greek. So the golden age of Greece had it all and became a major influence on the rest of the world. What else affected our modern world? Well, for starters, there's the idea that citizens are supposed to take responsibility for their own government. The idea that the people of the city are responsible for the defense, the government, and the well-being of the city, and the responsibility for setting up a form of government actually lies with the people, not with the king. That's an Athenian ideal. It's not the king or some external ruler who is responsible for the city. It's the people of the city. And they, the people, can choose the form of government that they want. This has been more recently called government by the consent of the governed. At the core of this idea is that it's not the government who owns the city or even the country. It's not the king that owns it all. It's the people that inhabit it that, it, that own it all. The beginning of the U.S. Constitution invokes this idea with the phrase, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. 
See, it's the people who are putting together the government and designing a form of government that will protect them from tyrants. That's what the Athenians were trying to do. That's what the founding fathers of the U.S. were trying to do. That's what the lords of old Britain were trying to do with the Magna Carta at some level, protect their rights from tyrants. Behind this is the idea of personal responsibility, the idea that I am responsible for my life, my well-being, and my future. It's not the government that's responsible for that. It's not the king. It's not society. It's me. I'm responsible. The Greeks would have called this honor. It incorporates the idea of doing what's right, of doing one's job, doing what one is supposed to do, and being responsible for one's own life. This was definitely in the minds of the Founding Fathers of the United States, although it seems like we may have lost this a bit in recent years. The Athenians took responsibility for protecting themselves from internal threats, that is tyrants, and external threats, like Persians, for example. It's an important principle, and it's kind of odd how seldom in world history a group of people is actually governed by a government that they chose for themselves. It doesn't happen all that often. In the modern world, we kind of take it for granted that people get to create their own governments and live under it, but until recently, it was a rarity. Usually, people were governed by a king, either someone who had taken over from their own region, or by a king who had conquered them, who ruled from somewhere else. This has been the historical norm, not people governing themselves. Tyranny, not self-rule, has been the norm. One other way that Athens is still influencing the modern world is the scientific worldview that dominates the West. We'll talk more about this in the episode about Plato and Aristotle. They had a huge impact on the development of science as we know it today, especially Aristotle. His enormous body of work influenced science, philosophy, logic, and religion, but we'll come back to them again later. Before we get to them, though, we need to take a look at what basically put an end to the really golden part of the golden age of Greece, and that is the Peloponnesian Wars. Next episode, we'll look at the battles between Athens and Sparta. Then we'll come back to Athens to focus on Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And then on to Aristotle's pupil, Alexander. <music>